1: Hello, this is David Rutledge with you for the Philosopher's Zone. How are you this week? Are you living your best life? Are you achieving your highest goals? A lot of ethical philosophy addresses itself to the question of how to live the best possible life. If you think of Aristotle's virtue ethics, Kant's uncompromising moral imperatives, the egalitarian vision of Karl Marx, the thing that unites these very disparate thinkers is a desire for greatness. And we see the valorization of a certain kind of greatness everywhere around us today. Elite athletes and CEOs and political leaders and billionaires, they all enjoy immense status purely by virtue of the fact that they've done incredibly well in a particular field. And, you know, nobody's arguing that we should instead create a culture of mediocrity. But my guest this week is wondering if when we pay immense respect to the greatness of a few, We forget about the goodness of the many and all the ways in which the success of hugely successful people depends on the hard work and often the sacrifice of the moderately successful people, the underprivileged and the poor. His name is Avram Alpert. He's currently a research fellow at the New Institute in Hamburg, Germany, and he's the author of a wonderful new book titled The Good Enough Life.
0: I had a vision of the world, and that vision of the world was, I think, relatively standard straightforward that we lived in something like a meritocracy it wasn't perfect but the idea was that you you found what you were good at and you pursued it to your best and if you really pursued it to your best you know we would be able to meaningfully reward that and if we couldn't meaningfully reward that you know we would live in a society that would make it kind of decent and and okay for for everyone who had whatever other kinds of talents or dispositions And, you know, I always had a, for much of my life, I've had a criticism of the way that this functions in the economy. And and I've seen, you know, vast amounts of wealth um, get stuck in the hands of the few and not circulate and and people fall into poverty and and all sorts of problems. But I did think that maybe this would be kind of true in, in culture or in writing or in other parts of life. And once I entered the world, I just found very quickly that none of this was true that the ways in which we reward people and the kind of work that they do has so much more to do with luck uh, and with networks. And that if you do fall off or you don't you know, find your particular passion or ability, you very quickly fall through the cracks. And that this worldview, this idea of kind of being the best, finding the best, supporting the best, as much as it makes sense uh, abstractly, it almost necessarily or really necessarily creates a set of divisions with society, within society Uh, and produces a kind of permanent uh, underclass or a set of underdevelopment and that we just don't need to go about things this way Uh, because even in this system where we're supposedly finding and rewarding the best, we we aren't actually doing that. Uh, We're often kind of finding the people, again, who are the luckiest or who are the best networkers or uh, who are in the right place at the right time. Uh, Sometimes, of course, people do have talents and they get rewarded for them, but so much more people are not. And so much more people who are just decent, ordinary, caring human beings aren't able to find their place. And so I wanted to think, what would a world look like that wasn't about finding the best, being the best, rewarding the best, but really was about appreciating the complexity, the meaning, the depth uh, of all of us? And I found this phrase in Donald Winnicott, in The Psychoanalyst. He he talks about this idea of uh, being a good enough parent. And I thought Winnicott's analysis of of parenting really mapped on very well to what I was seeing in other spheres. And so what Winnicott says is, of course, when you have a child, you wanna be a great parent. I mean, hopefully, right? You wanna be good to your child. You wanna give them everything. You don't want them to want, you don't want them to suffer. And so you, you overdo it. And Winnicott said the problem here is both for the parent who gets so stressed and so anxious and is just kind of overburdened all the time, but also for the child. And that what happens to a child who is isn't given who is given too much in life is that they fail to develop their creativity, their adaptability, their capacity to experience the fullness of being a human, which of course includes some degree of suffering, some degree of difficulty, some degree of, of just working through problems, tragedies, betrayals, accidents. And so Winnicott didn't then say, well, don't be a great parent, be a terrible one, or give up on your child. No, of course, he said, be good enough, right? Be good in the sense of, you know, be loving, be caring, give meaning to your child, give them a kind of world to live in, um, be enough, right? Provide sufficient material and emotional support to really develop and and feel cared and and loved, but also, you know, prepare them for the difficulties, for the challenges, uh, for the imperfections of life. And because you recognize that you are only ever good enough, that any of us is only ever good enough, You need to learn to cooperate, you need to learn to work together to appreciate the kind of values and complexities of other people who are also themselves no more and no less than good enough. And so I thought that this way of thinking about parenting actually said something about many other aspects of our lives and society. Uh, And so I I tried to kind of expand from this good enough parent model into this good enough life model and and show where it's present uh, and can be a, a meaningful resource for us across many aspects of our life.
1: But you discuss in the book, I think, in a really interesting way, the culture of excellence and the culture of greatness that we've created for ourselves. I mean, excellence is just out there. You know, there are people who are monumentally talented and accomplished and wealthy and have achieved greatness of some kind or another. Do they just exist in their own rarefied universe? Or or are you saying that they affect the rest of us in negative ways? Maybe not they themselves personally, but is there a sense in which the success of the successful represents some sort of threat or challenge to the good enough life.
0: Yeah. So I'd like to make something of a distinction between the kind of system of greatness or the way we define success and something like excellence or passion or interest, because there's nothing in in my argument that says you shouldn't find something that you really love doing or that you're really good at doing and, and pursue it as much as you would like. You know, always sort of acknowledging that if you're playing basketball all the time or you're writing all the time, you might be missing out on other things, like being a good friend or being a good parent. So you need some sort of balance in life. But the concern that I have with, with success is, is that it does, in fact, affect all of us. And one sort of simple way to understand this is the way that we, we measure something like intelligence. And we know that, in fact, humans have many different kinds of intelligence. There's emotional intelligence, there's social intelligence, there's a kind of rational intelligence, there's a kind of logical intelligence. But what we do in the way we kind of sort people in the world is we pick a particular kind, generally kind of IQ or some kind of school smarts or something like this. Um, and we tell people that you have to match up to this particular kind of intelligence. And we define success as this particular kind of intelligence. And so once you've taken the the plurality and complexity of human life and decided that one aspect of it is the thing against which we're going to measure everybody else. It becomes the case that some people are going to be very good at that. Uh, Some people are going to be not so good at it. And some people are going to be quite bad at it. Um, So you'll get something like a bell curve, or you'll get a sloped graph kind of showing a particular direction. But in fact, what you've done is to kind of erase all the other interesting, complex things about these people, they're different kinds of intelligences, they're different ways of being. And so if we define success as being at the top of this curve or you know being at the end of the bell curve, we are creating a system which everyone else is being forced to measure themselves against this particular way of thinking about things. So it's not so much for me that uh, again, excellence is a problem or passion or pursuit is a problem, but that we in fact inhibit so many people from pursuing their passions or what they're interested or excited about, because it may not match up with the metrics that we, we have as a society. So what I'd like to do is instead of thinking about success as being the best in a particular thing, as a successful world, right, a successful society would be one in which we really could develop the passions, the complexities, the interests, the fullness of, of all humans. And so that would be more, my concern again, it's less the excellent side of it than it is how we define the success part of it.
1: I'd like to talk a bit about elite level sport where you have this strict binary of winners and losers and the, the pursuit of excellence of, of, a, of a, a very focused kind to the exclusion of everything else. It's, it's sort of relentless and completely uncompromising. And I wonder if you think professional sport is a reflection of the kind of problem that you're identifying here, or if it's also in some sense part of a feedback loop where it, it reinforces and aggravates the problem.
0: This is a hard question for me because I grew up playing sports. I watch sports all the time. Of all things, I watch American football uh, every season, and I cannot explain why I watch it It as a very brutal sport, but I find it quite beautiful. Again, I respect and I appreciate the the kind of passions and and the things that people bring to sports competitions. What concerns me um, about it is that again, when you think about a sports club, uh, what goes into it. And, and I, I apologize, I know less about the kind of Australian side of it, but on the US side, you often have a lot of public funding uh, that goes into the building of the stadium, uh, but not just the building of the stadium, of course, but the roads and the electric grid. Um, you have then all the, the people that work there Um, the concession workers who, especially during COVID, right, were the ones who really suffered when sporting events were shut down. The players didn't, the owners didn't. um, I mean, most, most of the kind of high level ones, at least, you know, you have all the trainers, all the coaches, all the people that clean the stadium. You have all these people that make what we see possible. And when you look at sports, you don't actually see this, right? You kind of wind up focusing only on the competition, who wins, who loses. And if there is a way to have really high level competitions where people, again, I think we can, where people really pursue what they're good at and we respect them and they get a fair amount of esteem in society. I don't think this is is really a a problem, but when the focus is so much on them that the lives of all the people that make what we enjoy possible uh, become worse or are inadequate for a kind of meaningful and, and sufficient lifestyle, that's where I think it's much more of a problem. And I also think it limits you know, our imagination a little bit. Competitive sports are, again, they're kind of amazing, but they're also pretty terrible, right? And they're very hard on you, they're very hard on your body, and they're very exclusive. I think we do have a way in which we you know, people go to the gym or they have their little workout routines, but a lot of us, I think, feel somewhat alienated from our bodies because we think about, right, again, just as with intelligence, we think about bodily capacity within a set of metrics. And if we don't meet that set of metrics, we tend to think, well, I'm not that good at this, or I'm not that, in, you know, I'm not an interesting athlete or, or, you know, embodied person. But in fact, we all are, and and we all have these different capacities. People have different abilities, disabilities, um, but you can work within those and, and develop your capacities. And I'd like to see a culture that talks about embodied success is really learning what's good, what's meaningful, what you're able to do, and encouraging all of us to do that.
1: You're listening to The Philosopher's Zone. I'm David Rutledge, and this week I'm speaking with Avram Alpert. He's the author of The Good Enough Life, which, a little ironically, happens to be an excellent book. Publication details on The Philosopher's Zone website, and you can also follow us via the ABC Listen app. What about competition outside of a sport, right? The, the world of business and employment where meritocracy is supposedly the name of the game. What are your thoughts on competition in general, which we're told brings out the best in us?
0: I just, I find it a very strange idea that competition brings out the best in us. And I think it's probably true for some people and maybe people who succeed at competitions and then are wind up in a position of power to create competitions for other people. I mean, there's some degree of people who maybe want to do something that they're not particularly good at. And, and, you know, in a society, I think that's good enough and supports them. They wouldn't have to pursue this or worry too much about it. But maybe then we wind up at the end of the day, there's 15 really talented people Uh, And they're all competing for, you know, three or four available jobs. What that competition does is to effectively take these 15 people and say, 12 of you or so, uh, we're going to give up on your talent. We don't want it, right? You are as good as anyone else here, but we're going to pick one of these people because we like them a little better, or they have a different mentor, or we know them from the network, or, you know, we think they'll be a little better at the end of the day. But this is an exclusion of talent. It's not an inclusion it's not actually bringing out something better it's saying let's get rid of this and once you're in the workplace uh what most studies show is that the kinds of skills you need to develop an effective work culture are things like cooperation humility listening to others you do need leadership of course you need the ability to make hard decisions sometimes It's not always the case that the person who's really good at one skill set is going to make the right decision. It's often the case that democratic decisions do have better long-term outterms, even if they don't have short-term in the same sense. So I don't find this like a particularly logical way of thinking about how we can flourish uh, as a society. And so I think, you know, not just me ethically, but I think also kind of practically, there are other ways of thinking about how to bring more people in. I'm
1: interested in your own experience as an author and as an academic. I mean you 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 seek publication of your work, you go after academic fellowships. Presumably that's a very competitive environment. How do you deal with that?
0: I don't deal with it very well. I did part of part of where this book came from was seeing how the academic field operated. And it's exactly, I mean as I was just describing for business, probably projecting some from my own academic experience where pretty much anyone that I know who has gotten a PhD is a extremely intelligent person and is able to write and is able to teach and is able to do the administrative work that would make them a good colleague academic. Uh, occasionally you meet these people who are kind of stratopherically uh, Einsteinian in, in intelligence, but they're really the exception, not, not the rule. But that aside, you know, if you look at who winds up getting jobs or who winds up getting fellowships, I couldn't tell you if I looked at the people I went to graduate school with and the ones who are really successful now and the ones who are not, I can't actually point to a difference in their quality of work. Okay. And there are these ways in which once also, you you know, if you get a job for whatever reason out of uh, graduate school, um, that job itself is a kind of imprimatur. It kind of says this person is worthy and then you're more likely to get a fellowship. You're more likely to get a book contract. Um, these things kind of continue on and, Recently, I wrote an essay about a month ago now arguing that, you know, one way we could deal with this is to have a lottery in academic hiring. And the argument that I'm trying to make there isn't really so much in favor of a lottery as it is to kind of get people to realize how random and how lucky so much of this stuff is and that it is effectively already a lottery. So if we if we institute the lottery, and, you know, let's and I don't mean a lottery, a random one. I mean, a lottery of people, you know, let's say we cut down the 10 or so qualified applicants, Out of those, we really don't know who's going to be the best writer. Probably they're all going to be really decent. Let's pick from that group. And, you know, that way you at least cut down on the the hubris, right? You kind of increase people's humility and the people who don't get in are able to then say, well, it wasn't because I wasn't good enough. It was just because this, this is how the lottery system works. And this was actually tried at the University of Basel in the 18th century, because they wound up having this kind of nepotism problem. And I think it, I can't remember the number now, but it was something like 40% of the faculty were all family members um, and they didn't know how to break this. So they started doing the the lotteries. And what I found as I was researching this article with the, the help of the editor, was that this is not so different today, that something like 75% of, of faculty are the children of previous faculty, not at the same university, it's not quite Basil's situation, but right, having a parent with a PhD is probably the best way to get an academic job. And so I think the lottery system doesn't really solve most of these problems, but it forces us to recognize it. And then maybe once we recognize it, we can start to say, okay, how can we bring more people in? How can we have more cooperative ways of thinking about hiring? How can it not just be a kind of winner take all system?
1: One thing that I find really interesting about your book is the way that it takes on this idea that some people need to be great. And in order for those people to be great, other people need to be consigned to servitude and all the vulnerability and and misery that goes along with that. Can you flesh that out a bit? Like where and how do you see that dynamic operating?
0: I think it's essentially this idea that, again, as I was saying a bit earlier, if you have a a metric, right, that sort of says, this is what talent is, or this is what success is, or this is what we're, we're looking for, um only so many people are are going to meet that particular metric and we're going to then create a group of people who because of their other talents or other abilities are just never going to be recognized and obviously you could have multiple metrics and there are certain, it's not just that society rewards IQ it also rewards you know rewards other kinds of intelligence or other ways of being but as long as at the end of the day there is a kind of slice that makes it through The rest of us aren't going to and we need to move away from bell curve models or slope models into these really kind of plural open ways of thinking um one of the ways that this happens is that we have this is the the work of a social economist named fred hirsch who wrote a book called the social limits to growth Uh, it's a very interesting book it's a bit dense um but and and maybe isn't as well known because of that but it's i think a really important document and what hirsch tries to explain to us is that you know, in the world there is the material economy and the positional economy. And in a let's say in a theoretical, no one's quite managed this, but right in a theoretical communist world, everyone could have more or less the same material quality of life. Uh, but Hirsch says the the positional economy, the status economy, respect, attention, uh, these kind of things are they're finite. There are social limits to them. So no matter how much we can grow the material economy. Right? We can't actually pay equal attention to everybody, and, and not everybody can have a leadership position. We can shift this a little bit. We can be aware of it and try to pay more attention to more unknown people, or we can try and you know have more rotation in, in leadership positions or, or these kinds of things. But because of that situation, what this necessarily creates is that there, if, if we don't acknowledge it, there's going to be a tightening at, at the top. Uh, and there's going to be this kind of openness, uh, diffuseness at the bottom, and, and people wind up falling out. So I'm certainly not saying that that the world cannot. I'm really, in fact, the opposite. I'm very much advocating for a world that does recognize our plurality, our complexity. Um, but if we're defining people somewhat narrowly and looking for a somewhat narrow strip uh, and ignoring the the inequalities in the material and the positional economy, this is the the result, is that we wind up with some people who are extremely successful and and other people who are left out.
1: As you point out, the good enough life is still gonna have problems, right? Perhaps especially under conditions of modern capitalism. And I wanna ask, how can someone set their sights on a good enough life when the consequences of modest ambition are potentially very negative? Like if I'm relentlessly focused on the, the hustle and the fight to get ahead, it's not necessarily because my values are askew. It could be because I know that moderate ambition could very easily land me in a life of precarious casual employment. You know, that cycle of working poverty that more and more people are finding themselves in. And by poverty, you know, I mean poverty of meaning and fulfillment in, in one's work as well as material poverty. That, that, that's a lot to be expected to resign yourself to, potentially. What are your thoughts there?
0: Someone described this to me the other day as my book was advocating bringing a knife to a gunfight, right? You know, you're telling us to be good enough, but everyone else around us is kind of just still going on and and society whether or not people want to, you're you're caught up in this. And what I do try to say in the book is that it's not a self-help book and in fact I take some some difference from self-help books because I think you can find a lot of this the self-help genre that tells you Slow down, you know, just kind of be good enough. Don't have too high expectations. Relax, go with the flow. And you're not going to win everything, but it's going to be okay. Uh, and the problem with those books is exactly I mean, I think it's actually generally good advice. Uh, the only problem is that in the world that you're describing, the world that we live in, if you just kind of relax, like it is, it's either a kind of privilege or it's a, a sentence for a really difficult life. And so what I try to suggest in the book is that, look, we need this self-help part of it. We need this way of thinking, this this horizon for our expectations, the kind of world we want to be a part of, but that this does require a political change. And and part of living the good enough life means becoming involved in political work and in whatever capacity you have, if it's writing, if it's talking to friends, if it's writing a letter to the editor, if it's being involved in in a political campaign, community organization that can help really make being good enough, possible, easy, uh, available to more people. There's been uh, in the United States a bit of a wave of unionization post-pandemic, and this has many different reasons, um, but one of them that people have been writing about, not not to make these particular people the heroes of their story, they're certainly not, but there are people who are actively kind of what's called downwardly mobile. Uh, they're The American lexicon salts. I, I don't know if that's an international term, but they are joining purposefully low-wage work, working at a Starbucks or an Amazon warehouse in order to help the unionization efforts. Uh, and this, is, you know, so there's, there was an article in the New York Times about a Rhodes Scholar who was doing this. There was a piece in the, the Boston Review discussing, you know, various people who've been involved in this effort. And this is the kind of thing where people are, are saying, I'm going to not just try and live my, you know, what most of us academics do, and right? I'm going to kind of care about inequality, but I'm still going to pursue my writing and live my kind of, you know, uh, middle-class life. They're really engaging with this other life and, and living it and in so doing, really trying to to bring it up and, and transform it. And so I think it's, it's true, you know, you do have to recognize that th- these kinds of decisions, uh, they may wind up putting you in worse situations. I think it's also true, look, and this has to be recognized, and I think everyone recognizes it, if you are a Rhodes Scholar working at Starbucks and you change your mind, you can go about doing something else relatively easily. It is, it is not the same. Uh, but we do need, the, I think, these kind of forms of solidarity, uh, what was used to be called kind of class traders you know, who'd really kind of cross over and say, I will put my life here with you and I will try to lift us up together. And I, I am tremendously um, impressed by the, the kind of bravery and capacity to do that.
1: One thing that the COVID pandemic did was that it drew attention to a sector of society that many of us perhaps hadn't noticed before. And that's that's the people in the service and the hospitality sector and the healthcare industry just delivering the food or driving the trucks that bring the food to the shops or looking after our elderly relatives. And I know that for you, that moment represented some sort of hope for the emergence of a more egalitarian consciousness in society at large. Tell me about that hope and, and whether or not you still have it.
0: Yeah, I started writing this book in the midst. It was March 2020. I was in New York City. Uh, there was this, you know, kind of daily um, applause for essential workers. I mean, it was also a very difficult time. There were amb- You know, was, yeah, I were hearing an ambulance or applause. I mean, it was a, it was a pretty intense uh, month there, a few months. But there was this sense. And when I started writing this book, I, I had this almost... The first draft. I mean, even as I was kind of wrenching and, and feeling all the pain around me, it was almost a, a like an exuberant draft. It was oh, okay. The the like uh, what's the phrase? The veil's been torn away, or, or our, you know, the the scales in our eyes have fallen. People, are, you have to see that this isn't the way that we think the world works. Is not the way it works. What's necessary to keep life going, to keep society going. Are people, yeah, delivering food, doing care work, the kinds of things that are not all that rewarded? And I remember there was, I think it's some months later, at Davos, Mark Benioff, who's the CEO of Salesforce, a cloud company, makes this just remarkable claim that the heroes of the pandemic were the CEOs. You know, everyone out there is applauding the workers, but really it was the CEOs who were doing the logistics and, and getting the masks in the right place. And I, I'm not saying that these logistics were, were unimportant, but it was just this, even at the moment when we were really finally recognizing something, the fact that someone had to say, no, no, but we're we're really the heroes. Like we're, we're the ones. It was just remarkable. And the fact that I started writing then did mark this book, I think the book had originally maybe a bit more of a I was going to go a bit deeper into some of the philosophical aspects and talk a little bit more about the complexity of um, life and the kind of uh, get more into the psychoanalysis of it and the kind of fantasies of the mind and the ordinary person and, and how rich and, and interesting all of our lives were. And it became a slightly more political book than, I, than I'd originally intended because I, was, I felt like I was riding this wave. By the time I finished it, I, I did have to edit down some of that exuberance and some of that automatic recognition and and try and you know, really engage and, and deal with, I think, that lost feeling. But sometimes, you know, things go underground. And I think sometimes it doesn't mean that they are gone, they're just kind of rebuilding and restructuring. And my hope is that this recognition has just kind of gone underground. And it's, it's, in fact, building its strength, and it's going to reemerge in a, in a much more kind of beautiful and, and powerful way. That, that we really will make a society that recognizes and respects the way the world works and, and the kinds of things we need, the kinds that we do need, of course, uh, people in leadership doing logistical things, but we also need people to, to do those things. And these are equally important. And I just love to see a world that, that finally represents them
1: avram albert he's a research fellow at the new institute in hamburg germany and his book is the good enough life published by princeton university press and this has been the philosopher's zone you can follow us via the abc listen app and that's where you can also find an extensive archive of all of our past programs for streaming and download get into that i'm david rutledge lurking on twitter at david p zone and i hope you can join me again next week bye for now